wisdom literature can be challenging to, uh, to understand on the first read through, and also the, in the original text, it's, it can be quite challenging also to translate um, because it's poetry. Uh, it's written in a different genre. And so this is one of those challenging sections of wisdom literature. And so um, one of the things that I like to encourage congregants to do is uh, to know, I know this is bizarre, but um, you help preach the sermon. Not that you're preachers, um, that you're called to that, but you are called to receive the Word of God with an open spirit and with the humility of saying back to God, I want to I hear from you. Um, I want to know what the Word says so that, so that I can be attuned to you. When you do that, when you bring that spirit into the room, it actually helps uh, preach the sermon. I know that's bizarre, um, but that's what the Holy Spirit is here to do, is to illumine what's in the text and point us to Jesus Christ so that we can be captivated in our hearts towards God. And so, um, if you want that, uh, I want that, let's want that together, okay? So, as we pay attention to the text, um, let's desire God's presence to illumine what this means, okay? So, this is God's word to you today. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he's a father of a son. But he has nothing to hand, nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils after the wind? So it's our practice here to spend some moments in silence to pray. And we're just simply asking um, that God would, would make us open to how money speaks to our hearts, okay? All of us. So, how money speaks to our hearts. So, let's sit in silence and pray for a moment.
Father, I know that there are probably um, many of us in here who have sat in rooms in religious spaces, and when money was brought up, um, the only response was, was guilt, or the only response was pride. And so I ask, Lord, that the way in which we engage with you today um, would move us towards the face of Jesus Christ, in whom all the riches in this heaven, this, this world and in heaven uh, are pointing to. And so, Lord, would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit? In Christ's name, amen. Um, there was a, a movie in 1997, Chris T Tucker, Charlie Sheen, called Money Talks. Remember that one? Um, if you're a child of the 90s. And I was looking up where that phrase came from. It came from a, an a older gentleman, um, 500 B.C., called Euripides. And he coined this uh, phrase. He articulated it like this. He said that there is a talking power to money. A talking power to money. And uh, during the time of the Reformation, there's a guy named Erasmus that kind of repopularized that, and, and we sort of uh, still deal with that today. There is a talking power to money because money speaks. Money speaks to our hearts. That's what Kohelet is saying in this text, that money has a way to speak deep, deep into the recesses of the heart of a human being. I still remember when I was little, you know, today, the grandparents and the aunts give crisp 20s to the kids. Back, back, back in the day, it was like a 5 or a 10. And it's, it was different than other presents. I remember that as a little kid. That it did something to my heart that was like, huh, I like that. Um, and what I've observed about myself as I've aged is that that hasn't really gone away. It does something to, to my heart, and it speaks to my heart on a very, very deep level. Um, and that's what I want to explore in this text today. How does money speak to you? How do you want to speak to money? And the good news about money, okay? So how does money, how does money speak? What does it say? Um, in each of these verses, what Kohelet is doing is that he's debunking a lie that money says to the human heart, okay? So starting in verse 10, look, look at your text. This first phrase alone is worthy of meditating on all, all day long. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Money offers satisfaction and fullness, and this is what it says. It says, if you love me, if you devote yourself to me, I can make you full. I can fill you up. I can satisfy you. Verse 11 and 12 say, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes, sweet as the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Money can say... That if you get more of me, if you get more of me, you can get ahead. You can be advantaged over other people. Okay? 
if you devote yourself to having plenty, money can say, I'm going to give you rest. You'll be able to sleep. Um, but these verses also say, actually what, what ends up happening in the world is that when you accumulate a lot, people can become like leeches and try to get your stuff. And to have a full stomach does not promise rest and peace in this life. Verse 13 and 14, money can also say to you, if you have enough of me, I can shield you and your family from some of the pain in this life and from some of the hurt in this life. But Kohelet says that's not true because you can lose all your money quickly with one bad decision, with one bad business. The way that we would articulate it today is, you know, the market shifted and you're out of a bunch of money and then you don't have anything in your hands to hand to your children. Verse 15 and 16, and this is the most obvious one, and I would say probably the one that is is hardest to live into. Um, Money says, you can take me with you into the next life if there is one. uh, Money says, I'm weighty. I, I have weight that lasts. But Kohelet says, Look, you came into this world with nothing on, and that's how you're going to leave. I was reading this book by Marilyn Robinson called Jack, and one of the characters in that book, she says, I find it a shame that most of the best suits that men ever owned are now underground. And, um, you know, we like to think of ourselves in the modern West that we're very different than the ancients, but this is how ancient Egypt thought. Um, that you could take the material things that belong to you into the next life, maybe. And so they put stuff into the tombs. Here's, here's the, um, the terror of it all and the stark image of it all that Kohelet ends with. He says, when you grasp money, it's like trying to grasp the wind. It's hevel, it's vanity, it's ungraspable. Um, you can't do it. J.D. Rockefeller once uh, asked, what is your favorite million that you've ever made? Anybody know the answer? Your next million, right? Your next one. So, what money says, and these are, these are lies, you can be full, you can be satisfied, you can get ahead, you can have rest, you and your children can avoid pain in this life. And finally it says, I will be with you so long as you cling to me. And Kohelet says it would be wise to reckon with these lies that money has been speaking into our hearts from the beginning. In short, money asks you to serve it, to worship it, to say, Money says, cultivate me, accumulate me, treat me as precious. Money says that people get in the way of what you need. Money says that you can't trust people, but you can trust it. That's what money says to the heart of humans, point one. Point two, so okay, uh, what do you want to say to money? And I think first we must recognize money's potential power over our hearts. It doesn't matter how much or little we have. 
Um, that's why the wise say, uh, don't give me too little lest I profane you, and don't give me too much lest I deny you and leave you. The wise see that money does have immense power in the world, but the reason it has immense power in the world is because it has immense power in the heart of all human beings. So, verse 8 and 9, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And this is a very unique phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? Verse 9, but this is gain, this is gain in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. When goods increase, verse, down to verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer or a cultivator, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Okay, th- this is a hard thread to, to understand. But part of... Part of what links these four verses together is seeing and serving as opposed to seeing and consuming, okay? Oppression, often translated as robbery or extortion, oppression is seeing what should rightly belong to someone else and taking it because you can. Or because you have the power or the ability to do so. Here's the bizarre thing about what human beings can do in this life when they are wise. The wise see the poor and the wise can see money and what it does without taking it. They can see things without grasping it, even when it can advantage them. That's what the wise do. Why and how? It's for the wise. People are, people are more important than money. Very simple. People, and specifically people who don't have the advantage of adequate resources are seen by the wise. The fool grabs at what others don't see or can't see to advantage themselves. But Kohelet says, the joy is in the beholding. There's joy in just what your eye sees. And so you can work all day and have good rest. And the rich fool fills his stomach up and can't sleep. The wise see when leaders keep taken from the poor and they're not surprised and they're not bitter, but they understand the hierarchy of accountability, that they will be judged and that even higher officials have ones above them. And then it says, this is gain in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, what does that mean? And what... What does that have to do with the poor and money? The wise, here's what it has to do. The wise can say back to money. You can speak back to money if you're wise and you say, I I can see you and I can see what you do. 
and I would like to use you to serve people. And I don't have to be used by you. To, to cultivate a healthy and balanced community. That's the analogy here. Like a well-tended field. Instead of using people in my life to help get what I want and to benefit myself and my friends and my family, I can use the resources I have to benefit others. That's what it means to cultivate a field, I think, with this topic. There are very few advantages and gains in the book of Ecclesiastes, but the word in verse uh, 12 that says, um, committed to cultivating fields is the same word in verse 12 that says um, laborer, that that's, it means servant or worker, can also mean cultivation. I think cultivation is a great translation here because the idea is that when we stop chasing money and stuff and resources and attainment of more and more and more and more, and we look out and we actually see people, the true leaders look at others and say, you first. What is best for you? Not you for the leader, but the leader looks out, the wise leader says, what do you need? How can I help you? And the leaders that see oppression, they understand the hierarchy of accountability, they see what money can do and how it speaks, and they begin to use money wisely as opposed to being foolishly used by money to their own advantage. Now, how does this apply? How does this apply? Well, oh, I don't know, about a million different ways. One thing you could do, uh, I would direct you to this printout of a commentator whose name is Ian Provon. And maybe you can discuss this in your life group, your community groups. But I'm not going to promise you that you're going to like what he says in this commentary, okay? Because it cuts against the grain of almost every part of our culture, from every side of our culture. I can't promise you that what you hear early Christians say and what Kohelet's saying and what the commentary is interpreting from the book is uh, it's not easy to hear because it's not how we act. And so there's a direct confrontation. So here, there's a guy named John Chrysostom and, and St. Ambrose, both had the nickname of uh, golden and sweet tongues because they spoke so well. Here, here's something that both of them said. Not from your own do you bestow upon the poor, but you make return from what is his. This also is theft, not to share one's possessions, The rich man is a kind of steward of the money which is owed for the distribution to the poor. Not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. And this is hard, y'all. This is hard. We do not possess our own wealth but theirs. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Whew. 
Here's what I think those early Christians in Kohelet are saying. What most of us are after in money is actually found in the care for and relationship with the poor. That what you're after in money is actually found in the poor. When that becomes our primary concern, it changes cultures into people-centric cultures as opposed to a materialistic-centric culture. And Jesus said it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then right after that, he said, but all things are possible with God. There's a guy once named Joseph of Arimathea, and there are two things that we know about old Joseph. He had a lot of money, he's rich, and he also buried Jesus. And I think that's a picture of somebody who, who can speak back to their money and say, I, I'm actually going to use you to help this poor, innocent man. This man was mistreated and oppressed, but I want to do my small little part in this community to do something different. There's good news about money, whether you have a lot of it or you're currently deprived. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it's like to be a peasant and a king. Jesus knows what it's like to be a criminal and to be innocent. Jesus also knows, and this is what we're going to focus on, Jesus also knows what it's like to be in heaven as well as on earth. And what he's doing is that he's bringing the two together. And there's good news about money if that's the case. Money's ultimate end... We don't ever ask this. Like, like, what's the purpose of money? Money's ultimate end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. Money isn't supposed to be used just to get whatever we want. And verse 8 says this. We all know this. We just think about it for a little bit. Many of the people in the world today don't even have that option. They don't have access to money or the things that money can, can get. Scripture says this. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit. But injustice sweeps it away, Proverbs 13, 23. On the other hand, money is not meant to be treated with so much fear and contempt that you hate it and you're afraid of it. Now, I want us to consider something. There was no money before the fall. Meaning in terms of currency. There were these like precious stones and jewels and gold embedded within the creation, almost with the idea that human beings were meant to go treasure hunting and, and mine it out and seek to cultivate it and, and work, work the ground and create something beautiful. But in the new creation, the image, it's very, it's very different. The image in the new creation, what we think of as heaven, <laughs> is that everything is precious, and gold is everywhere. I've said, this, I've said this for years, but this is why gangster rappers are onto something when it comes to like their theology and scripture. Gold is everywhere. And here's what I want us to consider. If there is no scarcity, if there's never even the threat of scarcity, ever, how would that change you? It 
If there's, if there's nothing to fear and nothing to fear losing and there is nothing unjust ever, what does that mean? And all the things that you enjoy are as available as the public streets. How would that change you? When Solomon was at the height of what we would call his wealth management, it says that silver was nothing in his kingdom because there was so much gold. It's a lot of gold, a lot of gold. First, or Second Chronicles 9, 20 through 21, silver was nothing, is not considered as anything in the days of Solomon, for the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram, and once every three years the ships of Tarshish used to come and bring gold and silver and ivory, and apes, and peacocks. One scholar said it like this, Solomon had a navy, but its sole purpose was to bring him money. And clearly exotic animals, right? Um, why? Some would say just, just because he could, because he could, you know, he could do it. Uh, but if you read Scripture over and over and over and over again, what, what you begin to see is something deep is going on. When, when humankind and beast are at one, and when there is no scarcity of resources, and the king is known for his wisdom and his peace, and even outsiders see it, like the Queen of Sheba, that's beginning to sound a lot like the Garden of Eden. Y'all, in heaven, the picture is that the very streets themselves are gold and they are for everyone. That obliterates competition. If there is no instinct to worry about not having enough, how does that change you as a human being? If there is no fear that someone is going to try to get too much, how would that change us? Because that's the good news about money, y'all. In that world, if you steal my car, I'm going to hunt you down and ask if you want my house too. That's the idea. When we talk about the Jesus ethic, the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, that's the picture that he gives. And if that's how we live out here in this world, then we must change the way that we think about like our stuff. We continue to let money speak to us in a way that controls us, then the world of God's kingdom will become uninhabitable for us. We won't even want to go. We'd prefer this one. We won't believe that it's even possible because we're too busy trying to grab the wind. There's this picture of a um, great divorce, Napoleon. He's got a big old house, and it says that he's a million miles away from everybody. And in his house, he's pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, muttering to himself about how he should have attained more land and accrued more land. And he's basically bemoaning his, his failures and blaming everybody else on it. And... 
one of the main characters is saying, how long has he been doing this? And the spirit, there's a spirit that's sort of his guide and mentor. He says, well, it's about 15,000 years in your time. And the mentor spirit says this, there's always something they, insi- they insist on keeping even at the price of misery. You see it in a spoiled child in your world that would sooner miss their play than say that they were sorry and go back to being friends. But the disintegrated person would sooner fondle an unappeasable lust even when the reality, is joy, the reality of joy is offered to them. And they would rather do that forever. Jesus Christ comes into your life and he says, I would love to be poor so that you could become rich. That's the very heart of the gospel. That he gives of himself. And he says, don't cling. Do not cling to money. Cling to me. If you cling to me, watch the world come alive. If you cling to me, everything changes. If you cling to me, I'm the only thing that actually lasts. If you cling to me and you go back to the grave and you don't have any clothes on, I'll be with you. It's the same thing that money says it can do, but it never can. The great thing about God, though, is that he will not force your hand. He desires to speak to you, but in a far different way. God gives us gifts, not to be used by them, but for us to cultivate a field by caring for and seeing others. And there actually can be something underneath this sun that is gained when we do this. But the more we try to accrue and the more we try to grab things in this world, the the less we have. And the reason why, y'all, is because we're cutting against the grain of our very being which is God's image. And the way that God's image comes alive is to release things for the benefit of others. And God's intent is to make earth look like heaven. That's the future. And so the question is, do you want to get in on that? Jesus isn't afraid of what that $20 bill did to my heart when I was five years old. He's not afraid. But Jesus says, that's nothing. I can do something far deeper and far better than that. There's so, something so much better than that, but you won't see it unless you stop chasing the wind. Meaning, uh, we'll close here. The good news about money is that it's going away. <laughs> the question is, do you believe that's good news or not? To see God in the face of Jesus Christ is to inherit all things that we could ever imagine wanting. And that's when you know wisdom really is better than gold. A name that we use a lot around here, Tim Keller, uh, his son, I've used this example before, but his son uh, said, my dad abided by the 90-10 rule, which meant that he gave 90% of his earnings away and kept 10%. And he's like, you know, a lot of people admired my dad for that. I didn't. I was, I was angry because that's my inheritance. Um, and then you, you think, well, what did he leave Michael? 
What he left them was that people are more important than money. Let's pray. Father, there are certain things in Scripture that are hard to hear. And um, we ask that you would help us to see that we're, we're, not, meant, we're not meant to walk away from um, the revelation of who you are and just feel immense, amount, uh, immense amounts of guilt, but we are to walk away and see that the, the way of Jesus is actually better. It's more lovely. It's more wealthy. <laughs> it's uh, far richer than we could ever imagine. And so the things that, that uh, cling to our hearts, the, the idols, the riches, the wealth that many of us in here um, are so accustomed to being addicted to, um, that's not who we truly are. And you know that about us. And that's why you give us your word. And Lord, it's, it's not sinful. It is not sinful to have stuff. It is sinful to trust in stuff like it can speak to us like only you can. And so, Lord, reorient our hearts. That's why we come to worship. That's why we confess sin. Um, that's why we come to this table. And so we thank you, Lord, for today. In Christ's name, amen.